Sometimes we'll be all right. Hello and welcome to another week of Action Replay Extra Time. Today we discuss Ireland's victory over Bosnia, our chances at the Euros, we have a very special interview with Brent Pope and of course we have our quickfire back pages section. Today I'm joined by Jack O'Toole and Gavin O'Callaghan in the studio with Brian McGinn on the box. I'm Andy Call and without further ado, let's get started. Lads, what a night on Monday. Fantastic. What did you make of the game? Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard anyone that animated about a John O'Shea goal in, in the intro or anything that John's done on the pitch. But no, what a night. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, it literally probably our best performance that we've put in probably all campaign and it came in our most important in our most important game of them all. Really, really, once again, sound defensively. I was really impressed by Kieran Clark and Richard Kyo. I think they're really putting stake forward to be our first choice uh, centre-back pair and going forward. Right back Seamus Coleman, solid as usual. Randolph looked comfortable. Brady, for the most part, man of the match was, was excellent, apart from that one time he really got exposed down the right hand side. Whelan and McCarthy, once again, strong in, in, in midfield. And, uh, you know, while Murphy didn't, I suppose, up front, we still seen a little bit of struggle. I mean, John Walters was just incredible down the right hand side. So, really encouraging to see. And, uh, yeah, actually, really more confident now for the Euros than I would have been say a couple of months ago I think the squad's getting younger and we seem to have a real good uh, team spirit which sounds a bit cliche but that you can do tell because there's probably no absolute out and out star in that team that they really kind of all have to work for each other and it really does come across um, that they really just do, do have a good kind of team team spirit and really kind of play for each other so it's good to see I think one of the best things about it was I don't think I can ever recall an Ireland game of such magnitude that we've won so comfortably like mm. how, how many times in the history of any kind of European qualifier have we been celebrating our qualification with 10 minutes to go dancing <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just never happened we've never been comfortable in a game like that and well, how often have we been ever been able to say like you're not singing anymore? Like, how yeah. long have we ever been never. able to literally taunt teams, uh, opposition never. fans at home? Like, <laughs> unless you want to been... get cheeky with a few Gibraltar fans, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, I mean, yeah, like you're, that, that's that's basically it. We've never been in that in that situation to comfortably start, you know, really enjoying the festivities. Because when you go to an Irish match, well, I suppose up until recent times, there's always that kind of nervousness and that sinking kind of feeling in your stomach that you're kind of just waiting for things to go a, a bit south. You know what I mean? But um, I think we just. I just think, uh, given the Ireland performances and, and the, the fact that we took four points off Germany but one point off Scotland, I think we were expecting like Bosnia to be like this really good team. We heard like, oh, we got Jeko and this, this Pjanic. I think, oh, we're, we're in trouble here. There's some genuinely, and then there were stats being thrown down. World class players within their ranks. And in fairness, those players were quite good, but outside of that, they, they really weren't that strong. Like in my in my opinion, anyway. Exactly, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I mean, they are two world class players in Jeko and Pjanic, although, but. We we had uh, Coleman and we have McCarthy and we have younger players like Hendrick. John Walters. John Walters, <laughs> of course, he's a veteran. Uh, <laughs> but do you think our, our 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 side will change much in the playoffs? I mean, are Keogh and Clark going to keep be the first choice uh, centre backs? Will Shane Long uh, take the place of Daryl Murphy in the starting lineup? Uh, and do you think will Shea given be given his chance to sort of make amends for the last Euros, or do you think Randolph will get this get the nod? Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, and I think we're really kind of seeing this first restructuring of the starting side that we've seen a lot of old faces in that team that really are starting to be replaced by some younger players. Um, if I put it to use at the start in terms of um, in terms of O'Shea and and sorry Kyo and Clark, do you guys think O'Shea gets back into the team? I mean, the thing for I suppose if O'Shea has been he's been injured a lot lately, but I suppose. I suppose like- what you're going to say about any player is it, it just still depends on how they perform over the rest of the season because we don't have another international game until March. Yeah, well, that's so it. Club form is crucial now. And do you think uh, do you think players that didn't really get a chance during the qualifi- qual- qualification rounds? Do you think maybe if they can impress in the club in the club perspective, uh, do you think they'll get a chance to go to the Euros? 
But I, I always think, and, and I think Roy came out and said this yesterday, he said like guys like Alex Pearce and, and Aidan McGeady, they are going to be in danger of maybe getting dropped. And, and you do have to reward players that are playing week in, week out, which is why I think that like guys like Alan Judge for Brentford in the Championship and guys like Harry Arda for Bournemouth, I think they really are going to come alive. And I, I, Just being at the trainings myself in the last couple of months, you do actually see that Harry Arda is probably one of the players that is probably playing consistently for Bournemouth. And then it also is one of our players that is probably more comfortable in the ball because to be honest like we we don't really have a lot of really capable ball players I think Jeff Hendrick's improving a lot but Wes seems to be a lot of the time our only player that's really comfortable and is probably a, a creative player on the ball exactly and uh, I mean he's been labelled as probably our best performer during the qualifications and our best footballer but at the end of the day he's, he's over 30 and uh, do you think it's very unfair that he's only getting his chance for Ireland now uh, and also do you think he this is really his time to shine yeah, well, it is the fact that he seems to be. He's, Martin seems to. He's thinking with him a lot during the campaign. Like, he, he was not really playing him away. He's as well as only he was really kind of fixtured for home games, whatever that's supposed to mean. I think if it's on the diameters of a football pitch, you can play. But, it, yeah, it, it is kind of probably sad that he's, he's, he's 33 and that it, this probably will be his last major tournament. Um, he's, he's been a good player. He's, he's one of the, probably the, the best exponents of, of Irish football, I suppose, graduating from League of Ireland ranks to the, to the you know the high, the Premiership. And I suppose if you go to some of the pubs that we've been in Dublin, he's been described as the Irish Messi as well by some Norwich fans. Um, so I probably wouldn't go that far, but he's he's an exceptional player. Um, now one of the things that I find interesting is who do we after if, we, if this is Wes's last tournament? And I know we've only qualified, so we still have the whole European campaign to play for. But do we have anyone that's really probably coming through to fill that number 10 role? Because um, I could only see probably in this current team probably either Brady filling it as he did in the first leg in Bosnia. And I know he's probably not going to get that chance. If he's playing left-back consistently, it's going to be hard to transition from a left-back role into a centre-attacking midfield role. But he's had great success with that in the past. And given given the uh, improved performance during the qualifications, do you think this is Ireland's chance of uh, kind of making amends for what for the Euro 2012 performances but also do you think the group played a major part in that do you think if we get an easier group we, we might be able to be, do better in the, this, this time around I think confidence is going to be a lot higher coming into this campaign because we did we got a very very tough group we got in the 2012s because you have Spain who won it and then Italy who got to the final but at the time we hadn't really beaten any teams that were ranked higher than us. This campaign, we've taken the four points off Germany. I mean, we're not going to be too scared of them now if we, well, we'll have our own precautions, <laughs> but I don't think you can go in and take any of those top seeds with the mindset that Ireland couldn't conceivably get a result now against England, Portugal, Belgium, definitely. Italy in pot two, you could definitely scrape a draw with them. Spain is the only one I'd be a bit more concerned about. Really? You wouldn't be concerned so much by Belgium? No, not at really? all. Really? No, because Wales, Wales gave a good account of themselves in the groups against them. I don't see if Wales can do it. I know provided they have a world-class star on the mm. left wing in Gareth Bale, but they're not invincible. And, you know, looking back on the 2014 World Cup as well, like... The yeah, they did falter massively in that World Cup. I, mean, I remember watching that Russia game and it was... I thought Belgium were going to... I think a lot of people, Belgium, Belgium thought they were going to be the dark horse for the, for the actual World Cup. But like Germany really in that tournament... Out. Both Belgium and Germany showed themselves up to be human in 2014, and mm. well, Germany even more so in 2015, yeah. but it with a fairly average campaign. Who do you think would be the best case scenario for Ireland to get out of these pots? Take Portugal. You really? Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. You would. I'd be tempted just to think England, just because of the fact that I think the, if there's one team that Irish players would probably rise for in that game would be a, probably a fixture against England. Yeah. I don't think uh, I, I disagree with Gav to be honest. Uh, I don't think I would want Portugal. We we haven't really gotten a chance to see what they're like. Uh, I think ideal situation it has to be England. Uh, but again, I don't think there's anybody in any of the pots that Ireland can't get a result off. Uh, mm. But again, that's just the confidence going through. And just how how far do you think will um, how do you th- how far do you think we'll actually get like realistically? I, I think with this group, like we do have a chance of getting out of the group stages I just think like in the last year I think we have a much better team than we did the last year I think qualifying but hopefully we won't get because like, we did have one of the toughest groups in the last campaign as well but I, I, I genuinely think when I'm looking at the list here um, and I know we always do this we kind of go oh we might be able to like we could beat Croatia and then we might be able to pinch a point well, say, say we Spain, draw Spain Italy Poland 
What chance would you give us then? I, I wouldn't give us too much no. of a great chance, but if we got England, Ukraine and Hungary, I'd be kind of go, well, we should probably qualify yeah. from this, you know. Um, but then again, who thought we were going to beat Germany? And and, we, and in fairness, okay, we didn't do very well against Poland at all. Probably in, in stark contrast, we're one of our worst performances and thing. but we, we outplayed them at the Aviva for a good, like apart from that goal, we outplayed them by and large. But then again, it's like, we haven't really had any losses at the Aviva in, in a good while, so how much of that does that home ground factor and that home crowd factor? And does the inferiority complex come in once we're playing in France? You think we'll just like choke? Not so much that, but if we come up against Poland again, a team that we haven't managed to beat in the campaign, will mm. that play psychologically on our minds? I, I don't think that will play. I think I'd be more wary if we got Germany, because I think Germany would definitely have like... <laughs> We we definitely got outplayed against the in the Germany game. Like obviously we won, uh, we defended bravely well. There's a lot of things that you can use to describe that performance. But by and large, Germany had an offside goal disallowed, seventy percent percentage we're possession. Only, we're only really scared of them because they're world champions. And in that campaign that they won the World Cup, Algeria held them, Ghana held them. Yeah, yeah. No, they they they're definitely they're not invincible, and we showed we're, that as much as much as anyone. I don't think they're going to be. I don't think they're scared. I think after that Germany game. And just even going through this whole... I don't think they're really scared of anyone, to be honest. Like, I think... And sometimes they probably should have reason to be scared because we are, we're a lot better defensively than we are going forward. Our, our biggest problem is we can't score goals. And, and even with Shane Long coming back now, I think he's our only real... Our only real legitimate striker. Up he just front he'll never seem confident in a one-on-one situation, and that's no. always throughout his career. That's, that's always that's been, been his, his biggest thing. Is 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 his finishing? And like after that Germany game, it's like can you really doubt his finishing? But like yeah, it, it has been. It's it's it's, and it's just outside of him, and it, and he's had a lot of problems himself with with, with injury. And uh, if he like, I mean, I'd love to see him be be a mainstay in the, in the Southampton team and be their number one striker going forward. But is that going to happen even in itself? So. Um, when looking at uh, other options, do you think Adam Rooney needs to get away from Aberdeen? Yeah, I don't know. Like, is he? What was he gonna go, like? Would you have Adam Rooney at a Premiership club right now? I rate him quite highly, but I think he'd only go to the Championship. Yeah, if he see, I, I absolutely agree. I, I can't see him like leading. Maybe Bournemouth, if Bournemouth are desperate, given yeah. their striker situation, but I can't see him like leading the line of any. But he's, he's been scoring goals for Aberdeen. And he's been playing well, but so this is another criticism of probably O'Neill's setup is just that they bring in these large extended squads, and then you have players like Adam Rooney who might come to training, and then he's probably no hope of playing. Or we've seen the same with Ewan and O'Kane. Um, so it's but I mean I suppose this week of all weeks it's not it's not the week to be criticising O'Neill like we have to credit where credit is due tactically he's got it right in an awful lot of games and I think one of the biggest things has been his substitutions and bringing on substitutions at key moments at the right time so I do think the players have a lot of respect for him and I think him getting a new contract will be a matter of time but um, going back to the original question if we're good enough to how far we'll get I think I think out of the group stages and to probably is it, what is it with the Euros now with the extended is it, is it a second round or is it a quarter final it's a quarter final it's a quarter final a quarter final yeah I think a quarter final is reasonable anything beyond that I would definitely not put money on it anyway yeah and just just coming away from the, the squads given given the recent tragedies in Europe with the attacks on, on Paris and you saw during the week too the Germany-Belgium games were called off is this a worrying factor for a tournament that's going to be held in Paris do you think uh the tragedies will impact on the tournament in itself. Yeah, I I think it's it's obviously very shocking what happened in Paris, and I suppose without getting too political on it, not only was there probably attack on the French people, but it also happened to coincide on a Friday night when people were going out to drink and socialise and go to a concert and going to a football game, um, and so it's probably an attack on on people's freedoms and, and liberties as well. But I think one of the big things this was quite worrying with the with not only. I suppose the attack was the the intended attack was to get inside the Stade de France anyway, which would have obviously I know it was tragic, but it only killed I suppose one person as opposed to what could have potentially been. And I suppose with the Germany game getting called off, I mean uh, the increased kind of uh, military presence. I think I've seen something that was like it looked more like after the England France game, it looked more like a Call of Duty with the yeah. uh, you know with the with the guys walking off the pitch and the in the military gear <coughs> and and the and the Belgium game getting cancelled as well. But there's no doubt it's 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 going to be a threat and it's going to be something that's probably going to be have to be sorted out but I think at times like these we've also seen football really rise to it I think that that display that went on on Wembley on Tuesday night with England and France and the respect and the mutual respect shown I think was something that was great and I suppose really unifying in a time of of probably world crisis yeah exactly I mean with uh, such a big game between England and France there's always been 
they've always been these rivals but at the end of the day it came down to the uh, the match itself going ahead was more important than the result and I think it, it, it just show, goes to show like uh, football is just a game at the end of the day but it brings so many people uh, together mm. in, in a unification and I think the the tournament could the tournament itself could uh, symbolise this and just show the strength of people but uh, coming away from just a bit more bit more uh, depressing subjects just we'll move on to the Premier League uh, this weekend Man City are taking on Liverpool who do you think it's a bigger game for because you've seen with Klopp he, he's had a bit of a lacklustre start at Liverpool going <coughs> going down against Palace but you also see that City have a few injuries with Aguero out I think Aguero might be back now he could be back oh, really? he's back training we're not sure but uh, Nasri has been ruled out of it as well um, how do you think that game's going to go I can see I can see Klopp getting another result here to be honest he's had his he's had his marquee result against Chelsea now he's had two weeks to kind of start laying down his tactics and get his squad more prepared provided some of them have been off on international duty but I think he's going to go into this game fresh I think Liverpool are going to execute their tactics more so even than they have been so far this season and I would kind of fear for how Manchester City are going to cope with it really you're not, you're not put off by the Crystal Palace defeat at all not to too much, no. I think he's still trying to implement it, and I think this last two weeks now is going to give him a great opportunity, really, to get the get the squad back on track and get it going again. See, I don't. How do you think Sturridge is gonna is gonna fit into this when he comes back? Because like, I think he'll be. He was someone that really typified that Brendan Rodgers style of play that really was up front, was kind of fast moving, like a lot of touch and go kind of kind of play. But I, I suppose he's he's always been a good striker for them, and he's always scored goals. In, when he's had an extended run but I suppose with him it's been longevity and, and being able to stay in that team I think it's going to be another game for obviously Sterling that's going to be quite big facing Liverpool for the first time I think since he's yeah. since he's moved and he seems to have really revelled for City which I think I know they're the hefty price tag and I took 49 million well this is just waiting to be a disaster because he did, really didn't have the strongest of seasons for Liverpool last year but I think he's really started this season strong and I think with Aguero back I think that gives them such added firepower it really is the kind of he's the centrepiece f- for them I feel because while they have a lot of player good midfielders and they haven't had a good chance as well to see what he's going to be like on the pitch with Kevin De Bruyne yeah, yeah, yeah. Who has been absolutely sensational since he's came from. So City have actually really, when you think about it, City have really bought well. Um, I mean, we look at what Chelsea have done Oda in comparison. Well, yeah, Otamendi, you got De Bruyne, you got Sterling. Really, players that have come in and made a huge impact straight away. I see City winning this. Yeah, I really do. Um, I, I think it's. I think they're at home, and then they're just. I think they're just stronger all over the pitch in terms of when you when you look at the back up from you got Hart, Otamendi, company right through to the midfield with Yaya, and I think hopefully David Silva will be in there, and then with Aguero and Sterling, I think there's an awful lot of firepower on on, on that pitch, and the Bruyne as well. There's an awful lot of firepower on that pitch, so I think for a bigger game, probably for Liverpool in terms of the table, because I think. But then again, if City lose, they give they give Arsenal a golden chance to go top of the table. Uh, so really quickly can I get score predictions off you I'm going to say City 2-0 I think I'll go for a 2 all. and we'll, we'll move on uh, people this weekend will have a very very tough choice between watching the El Clasico or the El Relegato as we're calling it <laughs> uh, Chelsea versus Norwich uh, how do you think it's going to go for Chelsea I think it's a absolutely huge game, and we're talking to our resident. The probably the one person where we should be talking about Chelsea is actually in our control booth right now. But I mean, yeah, it's been a difficult time for him as well as all Chelsea fans. And I think before the season, if you if you looked at this November period and you thought Norwich City and Maccabee Tel Aviv away, you would have thought two fair um, sorry Norwich at home. You would have thought two fairly straightforward wins, but they're actually two massively critical games now in terms of. I suppose if Mourinho can win these games, he's going to go some way in just getting back the dressing room because regardless of who they're playing this team just needs wins at the moment they just actually need to score goals and probably just gain some more confidence in themselves than what they've shown already given what Newcastle managed to do to Norwich <laughs> I really don't see how Chelsea can slip this one up yeah. they can't afford to slip it up they have a much better team Norwich are going to have two very hungover Irish men on the pitch as well. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what do you think uh, happens to Mourinho if they don't get a result Will he? Will he still be there? Will he still? Yeah, have this the is backing? this is this is the one that we kind of keep going back to, isn't it? Like, 
I suppose with Chelsea for so long after Mourinho, there was there was just a, a staple of instability in terms of how much managers they've gone through. And after going through literally some of the best managers in in probably football, we'd have to say Phil Scolari, you had Rafa, Rafa Benitez, um, Carlo Ancelotti. There was a long list of of really top level and Chelsea managers. There, it's probably the biggest danger about getting rid of Mourinho. It's like is, who do you replace? You well, know? it's seeing Groundhog Day because they'll be looking at all the list of available managers and. Simeone's already got an extension at Atleti, so well, they'll be I, looking at Ancelotti again, and Ancelotti, here goes the loop. And we've and already done that before. They've already done that before. So it's like at the end of the day, look what happened when Mourinho left. I mean, he went on to Inter, won the Champions League, a couple of Italian titles with Inter, went to Madrid as well, had great success there. And it's just like this is probably form is temporary. Yeah, but then again, it's like even though he is the best manager, if he's lost the dressing room, can you really keep him? I don't think you can. I I think uh, it's going to get to the stage where Chelsea are just going to have to part ways with him again, and we we've seen it in the past, and I would say we'll see, we will see it again. If if you were to recruit the next manager, who would you be looking at? Well, to be honest, like they they got rid of the best manager in the world that's still managing at the minute, and that's Carlo Ancelotti. He he's expressed interest in the job. He said he would he would be happy to come back to Chelsea, and I mean I don't see why they I I didn't see in the first place why they sacked him. But uh, I don't see why they wouldn't turn to him again. Ronald Coleman, maybe. Um, I mean, I hate to see Southampton constantly get pillaged, and, and I hate all, all the players have gone. I wouldn't like to see their coach gone. But <laughs> I think, in terms of someone who's really developed and and continued, then redeveloped a, a good style with Southampton in, in terms of different playing nucleuses. I think if you were gone, I probably Coleman would be would be up there for me. He's yeah, Coleman's one name I've heard, and a lot of people seem to be floating Roger Smith from Leverkusen about as well. Okay, but they're both managers that haven't managed top flight teams yes they're inexperienced when it comes to that and as well as they're doing with their mid-table teams that's Europa League's kind mm. of standard teams I think as a Chelsea fan you'd have to pose a lot of questions because they do have quite a high standard of management experience when it comes to who they want to come in mm. and they ran out now exactly and just moving on to a match that the the style of football will be a little bit different not much but just a little bit <laughs> the El Clasico uh, how do you think that's going to go do you think what Messi might be returning for do you think that's a major major issue in the match or do you think Barcelona will be able to implement their style of play anyway well I think yeah, anytime you, you mention the name of Leo or you mention Leo Messi potentially returning it's obviously going to be a major focus because the funniest thing about this one as well is people are actually looking at Leo Messi returning and saying where do you put him in because Barcelona have been fantastic without him so good. Yeah. you don't really want to disrupt the flow either but I mean then again it's like you, you talk yeah. about the best it's player Leo Messi decade. I know probably the best one of the best it definitely has made a case one of the best players of all time so who would you take out <sighs> yeah I, I'm, I'm not too sure like, like obviously Neymar and Suarez are going to keep their places um, yeah. in I Yesler. think you're dead right he has to go in but he has to go in but like I mean who do you take who's the weak link yeah that's that's going to be a hard one like, I think he got to keep, keep players like in Yester and, and Busquets I mean they're obviously going to play their place so I, I think though we've seen it last year you have to I think with that three headed monster that is Neymar Suarez and Messi like a left wing centre forward and right wing it, they're just unstoppable like they scored more goals than probably any premiership team last year between them like I think it was easy it was something like ridiculous like 106 goals or maybe more between they them broke the record anyway yeah, yeah they yeah. absolutely smashed it so yeah I think Leo Messi returned but then I mean the El Clasico is just it's it's huge I mean I haven't seen I seen uh, a clip there yesterday of this time ten years ago, actually when Ronaldinho scored that fantastic goal in the left hand side of the pitch, where he just left Michael Salgado and a couple of other players for dead. And it been that. I mean, it hasn't changed since then. You, then you had you know the likes of Roberto Carlos, Ronaldo, Zidane, Ronaldinho, Samietto, Carlos Puyol. You had some, really some of the game's best players. And we fast forward ten years, and it's still very much the case. Yeah. I think the difference back then is they didn't like. They seem to have a little bit more magic back then because they weren't as dominant as they are these days. I mean, this for this El Clasico, it's still early in the season. It probably doesn't really matter who wins or loses it and you we're not really going to have to build it up too much because we're probably going to get four or five more El Clasicos over the course of the year, which we just used to not get. Yeah, and just uh, it's been revealed that uh, Sergio Ramos is going to play the game on painkillers. How important do you think that's going to be, especially with the return of Messi? Do you think if they put Messi in they'll play more wide and they'll stretch the defence but do you think it, would it not make more sense to attack their vulnerability with an injured player in the middle do you want to be sending on a vulnerable player like that 
well, but I mean, he's he's going. He, he said he's he said he's going to play the match. It's dedication, I'll give him yeah. that. But if your player is not fit, should Benitez really be thinking about playing him in El Clasico if he's not a hundred percent? I think it's just more of his. Uh, it's more of his presence that that's kind of making him want to play this game, and probably he'll come into the factor of Rafael Benitez starting him. I mean, he's such a he's such a strong character on the pitch, especially for Real Madrid's defense. Uh, I mean, when you have when you have centre backs like Varane and Pepe, I think there's no need to take the risk of starting Sergio Ramos. But uh, well, well, Pepe is probably just as much a risk given how much of a hothead he's proven yeah, exactly. to be in these games. You know what I mean? Like uh, you could very easily go down to ten men with Pepe on the field in such a massive game, especially if Leo Messi's on the pitch. We all know how much he likes to kick him. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's yeah, it is interesting, and I I think it probably speaks the more of. Of the situation in Madrid, um, with regards to Ramos, if Ramos wants to play with painkillers, it's obviously coming from him, and it's obviously like he's not doing this for, say, Celta Vigo or you know, Real or something like that. He's doing it for the El Clasico, the biggest game in Spanish football. So it's obviously on his part that he wants to come back and play. Um, and I think, as Benitez as a manager, I think that it'd probably be a very divisive point if, if Ramos and because in dressing rooms and stuff the players can see that some, if someone like Sergio given his stature in Spanish football is ready to go on painkillers and play it's probably going to inspire a lot of the players and it's probably going to show the test of how much it means to him Do you so, think Benitez is under pressure as a manager? Yeah I, do, I think he because is Because he is getting a lot of criticism for them being overly defensive at the moment not he, playing especially similar to United not playing the way that the fans want them to play but. Well especially the, the, the way the fans have been accustomed to Madrid playing for so so long um, yeah, but I think it would be a very big thing for Benitez to, to tell Sergio, no, you're not playing. And it would be, on one hand, you could say, right, that's Benitez stamping his authority in one of the biggest dressing rooms in the world. And on the other hand, it could have the, uh, probably a negative effect where it's like the players will probably may, may resent him for it. Now, this is the lose-lose for him because if he does play Ramos and it all doesn't go well for him, it's, gonna be, it's yeah. on his shoulders. If we, we've seen in Spanish football, there's, there's probably if there's one game that probably managers do get judged off, it's the, it's the El Clasico. And, but, I mean, yeah, that's a league where it's, it's so... I think we kind of mentioned like is is do we really see Benitez being like a ten year option at Madrid? Do you know what I mean? Like Nobody's they, a ten year option. No one's a, no one's a ten year option at Real Madrid. So it really is. I suppose on that on that sense, it's like well, why not? Why doesn't he just go in and do kind of what he wants? Do you know what I mean? Because realistically, it's like how long is he going to be in that job? Yeah, and we mentioned Leo Messi, and I think it's unfair if we don't mention the other man that's going to be on the pitch, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, he's been out of form recently. Well, as out of form Ronaldo can be, he just he, he's still scoring goals, just not three a game. How important do you think he's going to be in this match? I think he's been a bit lost lately because Benzema has not been there, and I think that's had a lot to do with his low, like just okay. I'm not going to say low low quality play by Ronaldo because it's far from low quality, but I think it's just not linking up as it hasn't been linking up the same in the last few weeks and I don't think he'll come back to full force until Benzema gets back on the pitch yeah I, I have to agree and, and I think Benzema's really been one of those unsung heroes in, the, in that Madrid attack line for years I mean especially because obviously he scores goals but he does a lot he really links in as probably the perfect what has been anyway the perfect striker for that system I think Ronaldo does really play off well with him but at a, at a certain point as well I suppose Ronaldo at some point the man, that man of just ungodly talent has to probably shine through and I think this will probably be a, a big major a big major moment in terms of his season because while he hasn't played very well up until this point I do feel like if he comes out and has a cracking game in the El Clasico it'll probably really put him right back on track because I mean, if he can do that to the, the likes of Gerard Piquet and, and, and company I think he can probably do it against anyone in the world and he has shown he's done it in the past so it's only probably a matter of time and just just going on Ronaldo he's, he's been linked heavily with Manchester United to go, to go back and finish his career there it's actually come out now that Rooney and Martial have been ruled out of the game at the weekend at Watford so we'll just take it back to the Premier League just for two minutes just to discuss this quickly. Uh, how do you think that's going to impact Man United's game at the weekend? Who do they play up front? Well, yeah, you're, the, you're the United fan. They're, lucky, like, they're just who, lucky they're who, defensively sound. Yeah, they are very lucky they're defensively sound because I don't know who they're going to play now, Like to be honest, because Martial, they've really pinned their hopes on him. Like, uh, do you bring Callum, uh, Callum James Wilson? or James Wilson, James Wilson back into it? <coughs> or well, he did well when he came on last year. Like, I know he's probably not definitely he's probably not ready. ready. He's not ready to lead an, a, a Premiership front line. But when he did have, I mean, who else are they going to turn to? I have no idea unless they play. I, I think they'd really be ruined selling Hernandez now. Yeah, I, I don't know Especially what they're going to do there. Uh, it's going to it's going to be a really difficult thing. It's going to be a hard. Play Fellaini up front. 
possibly. It's yeah, a, it's a viable. I mean, option. there's not really a mount watering uh, proposition for United fans as having Marwan Flaney lead your attacking line. But sure, sure, luck. That's the United way now, isn't it? Under Lewis <laughs> so we can all go and back in it all. Exactly. Moving on to rugby, with the heartbreaking news of John Alumi passing away at the age of forty, we have Brent Pope on the phone. So I'm going to pass you over to Gavin O'Callaghan and Jack O'Toole. A lot of pundits point out how rugby changed tactically as teams began utilising their strongest players in the wings whilst they also set out defensively to cope with this. Can you think of any other individual player that had such an impact in changing the way the sport has been played? No, I can't. And the criticism of John Alomu would always be, and when you get these arguments again, well, he's the greatest player of all time. You know, the, the the argument that often comes out when it's referred to me is, okay, you know, at times he could be defensively naive, and that is true. I mean, you know, teams that work Jonah out uh, will drop the ball on behind him because he wasn't for such a big man. He wasn't particularly great going back onto the ball, but you know. Having said that, I can't recall any rugby player in the history of the game that, with the ball in hand, you would practically describe as unstoppable. So, I mean, all players, you know, even the great players you talk about over here, the Jackie Carls, the Mike Gibson, the Paul O'Connells, the Brian O'Driscolls, you know, the McCaws, the Carters, they all have fallibility in their game, but they're not the complete player. I mean, Dan Carter, they're talking about as the greatest out-half. Yes, he's got a, a great range of, of, of talents across all levels of the game, but, you know, he might be not as good a tackler as, say, Johnny Wilkinson. The thing about mm. that sets John Aloma apart was with the ball in hand and playing the game with that power and that speed, in the last 20 years, you name another player that any other team has been able to put on the wing or anywhere in their back line, that is unstoppable and you can't name one because they're not out there Lomu in 1995 and the years after that playing with a kidney disease that said that probably knocked his ability down another 10% my god he was with the ball unstoppable and his strike rate for tries scored in relatively small number of tests you know 63 years of age uh, 63 uh, tests you know was incredible I mean he, he scored more or less every time he got the ball and I don't think there's ever been a player in the history of the game that's been able to do that. Would you say? Uh, would you say he ever played a game at full fitness? Well, they're saying that he didn't. Now I remember a story. I mean, my coach provincially um, uh, way back in 1984-1985 was a, a coach called Laurie Maines, who subsequently took the All Blacks to the World Cup with Jonah in it in 1995. But uh, when we were watching all the fitness tests that they were going through pre that World Cup camp. So Colin Meads, who was a great second row, as you know, was standing at the end of, of a gruelling weekend's training with uh, flight tickets to those players home that didn't make it. John Lomu was one of the players that didn't make it. He didn't he didn't come up to the fitness levels that were required by Laurie Maines to make the 1995 World Cup, and they sent him home. Uh, he got very depressed, and it was only Zinzan Brook and I think his brother Robin Brook who went to Laurie Maines and persuaded him to take John Lomu uh, to... Uh, the World Cup in South Africa because they said they had seen this guy and he was something special. So the thing was, he was always in those days criticised for being a bit maybe a bit lazy, but it wasn't anything to do with that. He said subsequently in interviews that he was trying as hard as his body just gave out. I mean, he wasn't clearing the toxic substances in his body and, and the kidneys were only working at about 75% of their ability. So, you know, there was another 25% of John Alomu that we never saw and that he never realised until he was diagnosed as, say, as having, you know, and having to have the dialysis and, and then the kidney transplant. But, no, we never saw the, saw the best of him. But, I mean, even at that, even at that, when you think of what he could have been like, I remember stories of he went over to a couple of training camps when the, the um, American football teams were kind of scouting him or whatever, and even they wrote back reports of what he could bench press or what he could arm curl, that he was just a freak. He was just a physical, physical freak. In the best possible way, I don't mean a freak, obviously, in a kind of a detrimental way. I mean in, a, in, a, in just this natural strength, this natural Polynesian Maori strength that, that, you know, that has lasted and hasn't been, nobody has replaced it. You know, there's still not, there's still guys or wingers out there that can match him in physique. Uh, yes, there is. I mean, there's one even, in, you know, went into play Bath this week, Banahan, who's six foot eight or something and, and, and 17, Shane Horgan was six foot four and, and, and 17 or 18 stone. But we're talking about the combination of six foot five, six foot six, nearly 20 stone and can run the 100 metres in a time that would qualify you for the Olympics and 
it was so many years ago. Yeah, Brent, exactly what I was just kind of, my next question was just in terms of that, he was really was the first player that we've seen of that combination of size and speed. But I think in subsequent years, we have, we've kind of seen that a bit of a change towards that. Do you think that he kind of paved the way for the, I suppose, the Repenny Fairfairs, the Nemanja Nadolos, the Julian Surveyors of this world and type? Yeah, he, he he's all of those guys' heroes. You see it with Nadolin now at the at the, the similar sort of stature, you know. And yes, uh, you know, people can. I said the begrudges out there can talk about John Alamu like they can talk about, as I said before, Muhammad Ali and these great sports people, the, some of the great footballers, the George Best, and that. How do you compare? You can only compare at the time. You can't. You can't keep saying that they're not going to find a, a winger bigger than, than John Alomu because they are. But when you put that whole combination of, you might get guys out there that, that, are, that are immensely big and powerful, and we've seen them in the last World Cup, but they don't have the pace. Or you may have a guy that has the pace, but he doesn't have, quite have the strength. I still don't know of a player out there now that has the combinations of the three of them, that you put them on a track, and you run them down that track for 100 metres at, at, at six foot five, six foot six, and nearly they're nearly 19 or 20 stone, and say that he can do that. Yes, we've got players out there. That a lot of the Fijians or the Samoans that are coming on now, they're big, strong men. It's the Tuolangis of this time, but they always seem to lack something, whether it's top end pace or whether it's the the, the ability to, to to break tackles or the fend or that they lack something that John Olamu had. And when we go back and we just look and say that, you know, all this was happening, you know, a couple of decades ago or more. That's what makes it more incredible. He was that good at that time. To remain to remain one of the world's greatest and most powerful players, even today, spanning that distance is, you know, you can say it about very few athletes. You know, we've seen 100-meter runners, Usain Bolt and that, you know, obliterate records over the last few, four, four or five years. You can't go back to sprinters 20 years ago and say that they would match up. Lomu still matches up in even today's game in my opinion um, Most Irish fans will remember most fondly for what he did to England in 95 and um, particularly Mike Cat. do the people of New Zealand also consider that to be his most significant game? Yeah that and, and it was a great game played where for the Bettersloe Cup when he came back they say the greatest game ever played I think New Zealand oh, yeah, three try, three try lead or something. You thought it was unassailable, and Australia came back and pegged them back to. And John Alomu scored the scored the last try, and I think that actually that try meant the most to him of all tries because I think the fact that you know they had sort of written him off a bit and said okay his health was health was not great, but he came back and he scored that try. But I think if you're looking at him in his best years, it was that World Cup. I think that's when he was fittest. That was when he was uh, most determined, in a sense, to break into the All Blacks. He was always so proud to be an All Black. I mean, I know you can sort of say that, you know, isn't everybody proud? But over recent years, I think sometimes, you know, they've given away caps pretty cheaply. You know, for those players that were around the scene for years and played provincial rugby for 10, 12, 13 years and never got All Black caps. And then over the last few years in the professional era, they've maybe given a couple of caps to guys on tours that, you know, probably haven't deserved it. And they've gone off to Japan. Lomu was intensely proud to be an All Black. And it was always about that. It was always about, he said in himself, he said, now that I'm an All Black, I just don't want to be an All Black. He said, I want to be a great All Black. Then when he was a great All Black, he said, I just don't want to be a great All Black. I want to be the greatest All Black. And that was his whole mantra, that he just kept wanting to be better and better and better. And always went back to his roots and always said, every time I pull on the jersey, it's like the first time. So I think that's what endeared him to not just a rugby player in New Zealand, but everywhere. He just played the game with such pride and with such passion. Uh, just just before we let you go, Brent, once again, thanks very much for joining us. Just two on uh, on Richie McCaw, obviously a, a remarkable career, and speaking of proud All Blacks, I think he really typifies it. Um, a career, World Cups, multiple World Cups, rugby championships, Bledisloe, Super Rugby titles, just about, and World Rugby Players of the Year as well, just about every individual and team honour you can win. Where does he rank, in your opinion, amongst the all-time greats? Is he the very best? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a good question. After just coming, what I've said about about Jonah, you know, the way I, the way I, I've been asked this question a lot this way, this week. The way I look at it is this: I think that John Alamu, from a New Zealand's point of view, changed the face of a game. Richie McCord didn't change the face of the game. Mm-hmm. He made it better. He made his position better. Lomu would still rank as that sort of player that was you know, unstoppable, unbeatable, uncatchable, all those things. 
what you get with McCaw, I always compare, and I know that sounds a bit of a stupid analogy, but I always compare top coaches and top players with pizza slices, you know, and as I said, <laughs> some, you know, I know it sounds funny, but if you look at like, if you look at like the perfect pizza as a perfect wheel, mm-hmm. if you take out two or three slices, it's not the perfect pizza. And I say same about coaches. Some coaches have brilliant man management skills, not so great technically. Other coaches would be great technically, not so good man management skills. With Richie McCaw, you've just about got the full pizza because he's just one of those players that, A, he's an incredible leader. Uh, again, he's a humble type of, you know, go across the trenches first type of captain. He's made that position his in a high attrition area like number seven or loose board. He has made that position his as one of the world's best for nearly 150 games. My God, you know, to play at number seven for 150 games, to never have a really bad performance... Yes, the world of rugby, the cynics out there are going to give me the same old excuses. Uh, oh, well, he cheats most of the time. He's offside. But I say, you know, good on him. He scored more. He famously scores more points in the annual New Zealand referees exams than the referees themselves. So he actually sometimes pushed the boundaries of the law, but yeah. all great sports people do. I don't you know, in the situation that people always said he's offside, he's offside. Well, he wasn't offside until they started penalising him. But to win world, two World Cups, to be captain of the All Blacks, to win the World Player of the Year, what, four times? Uh, to win Tri-Nations, to win Super Championships. I think you would be hard-pressed. Oh, yes, I will get arguments for, for, from this. I think you would be hard-pressed to say that Richie McCaw, at this moment, is not the greatest player that played the game. Certainly in the in the professional era, in the modern era, uh, yes, the greatest all-round player, I'd have, I'd have to say. And that's not just being, you know, I've been over here 25 years, as you all know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen the greats of Irish rugby too. I've seen the greats of, of UK rugby. But when you're looking about a player that has that full pizza slice, <laughs> then I think that it's <laughs> got to be McCaw. Will somebody else come along and, and threaten that? Yes, probably. That's modern professional sport. But at this time, he's a different player than Lomu. He's not as... He didn't change the face of the game. He didn't change the way players were selected. But he was and probably remains a better all-round complete player. And just finally, Brent, I mean, when we look to his natural successor, I think Kane was the one that I suppose being is kind of being moved into that role or, or looks like probably the favourite to take over that famous number seven jersey. Do you see guys like Matt Todd and Luke Braid and, and particularly probably Artie Savea, who I think was desperately unlucky yeah. to miss the All Black squad, who do you kind of see as really coming out of that of that next kind of breed and taking over that number seven jersey? Is it is it is it more complex than than just Kane assuming the role? It's more it's more complex than that. I'm not a, I, you know Todd Todd is very unlucky. I think he's a type of McCaw player. I think that he's been very underrated for a number of years. I think you're right. I think the next player to take over that mantle and what. You know, a bit like the Brian O'Driscoll situation over here. What huge, uh, what huge boots to fill. I think it's going to be Savia. I just see something in him. He's he's fast. He's aggressive. He's strong. I'm not a huge Sam Kane favourite yet. I know he's well respected in New Zealand, and he's still only relatively young. I think if if, if you were asking me, and I played at num- number seven for a lot of my career, I think if you were asking me, then I think the future of New Zealand rugby in the number seven jersey is Julian Savia. Thanks. Oh no, much. sorry. I- <laughs> How do you say that? Well, who knows? I mean, with Julian's right, I think I think Julian's probably best served on the wing for now. But we'll see. Yeah. Um, well, Brent... he could play, but like Lomu, he could play number eight as well, or, or you know, just, <laughs> just as easy. But uh... well, yeah. After that World Cup, I think he can just do about whatever he wants on a, on a rugby field. Brent, thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, you can follow Brent Pope on, on Twitter at the Real Brent Pope. That is a real Brent. Yeah, I had. That's not an arrogant thing. It was just that somebody put up a fake. Uh, Twitter profile of me a few years ago so I had to go and be the real Brent Pope <laughs> I've left it there so uh, yeah I need a, I need a few up. more Twitter followers so yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Brent does his stuff with his, uh, I think, your own line of shirts, and he also does some great work for mental health. So, um, great to see you and great support. Brent, thanks very much for having us on. Uh, a pleasure as always. No, delighted. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank Cheers, you. Brent. Okay, that was Brent Pope, uh, RTE correspondent. And Jack, just going off what Brent said. Uh, can natural ability come? Co- does that come before uh, something that can be coached? You see, it was Sonny Bill Williams, and during the World Cup, Ireland were criticised for trying to force methods that can't be coached, like offloads, running, for for examples. Do you think it is something that can be coached, or do you think it just comes with a natural ability of the player? 
Yeah, well, firstly, obviously, very sad news with Jonas passing. It was great to have Brent on. I think one of the one of the things that I didn't know before was his love of KFC and and just how how much he ate it and the size of his thighs. So, I mean, it shows you if that was if that was Jonas' attitude in '95 and the dominance that he had in '95. There was a huge amount of natural ability, and like to be honest, we, you can't really coach players like like John alone with that type of size and speed. Um, with regards to other players, I suppose we we seen in this World Cup. Yeah, I think Alan did kind of get exposed in their lack of of, of, of probably real core skills not to say that professional rugby players can't pass or can't run good lines and stuff like that and offload but I think we've just seen I suppose a superiority in regards to the Southern Nations and particularly when you look at guys like Milner Scott I mean to be honest we're just not producing that type of player um, we, we have produced some great wingers in the past the Dennis Hickey Shane Horgans Tommy Bowes now um, Andrew Trimble and the likes but we don't really see that really kind of sharp moving feet real nifty that we would have from a Milner Scott or, or someone with I suppose the Sonny Bill Williams ability to offload and, and probably Robbie Henshaw is probably the first real kind of centre that we've seen I know like Brian Brian did everything and, and was obviously one of our best player if not our best player of all time but I think Henshaw seems to be that next player that really has that all encompassing skill so maybe the coaching doesn't need a complete revamp if we can keep producing players like Robbie, Robbie Henshaw I said we won't but um, I think we did kind of get exposed in, in a, probably a lack of, of core skills at the World Cup and just going off that uh, with the likes of Henshaw Henderson uh, and coming in and you see the, the greats like Paul Connell retiring Brian O'Driscoll's gone for two years now and now Richie McCall retires from international rugby for New Zealand do you think rugby itself is coming into a new era of rugby where things might start changing you'll see different greats coming through and you'll see younger players starting to take up the reins Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I mean, we see Surveyor has got a ridiculous rate of tries. I mean, even compared to Jonah, he's probably going to much ended up surpassing Jonah as sad as it is to say, given the man's death. I mean, um, but yeah, like we see that a great line of players coming through. Sam Kane, even though Brent may disagree, I think is is a very good player. Um, I think he's got a lot of potential. And and even with Irish ranks, um, with the likes of Henderson coming through, we do see a kind of a new wave. So yeah, it's it's cycles. You know, it's when Rob Andrew retired, Johnny Wilkins and came a couple of years later and there's always going to be someone to, to success and, and someone to pass on so um, yeah I, I, I see rugby I think the, this World Cup was a great exponent for the game and I just see it uh, hopefully the game evolving as, as years come uh, we'll just move on to our uh, the, the paper talk uh, the back papers Marilyn Fellini has been told he may le- he may have to leave Manchester United in January to better his career uh, by Belgium boss Mark Wilmot's well, yeah, that's that's fairly big. Um, I, but, I mean, where does it go? He's probably not going to go back and play in the Belgian league. I can imagine he'd probably go down to uh, take him to Newcastle if he wants. <laughs> yeah, Newcastle, Spurs, maybe. He's uh, a brilliant impact player. He is, yeah, and he's he's proven that. But like, it's do you think like man? I've never really felt that like Fellaini has been like a week in, week out like all star performer for United. He just like he's been good and he's he's scored some good goals for them. But make no mistake, but. I don't think he's really recaps that Everton form that he had under Moyes, and I, I really feel him just kind of like languishing. I think he um, never he never got played in the same way that he did for Everton. He was always defensive midfielder for yeah. United or stick him up front. Yeah. In times of desperation, fifteen minutes ago, we badly need a goal. Uh, Everton, he had the monopoly of the attacking midfield row, mm-hmm. and he pretty much had free range to do what he wanted there, and it worked. But who do you take out in United to stick him into that role when they've clearly got better players suited for it? And uh, we'll move on to the Daily Mail now. Arsenal have they they report that Arsenal have been in talks with Alexis Sanchez over bettering his, his contract and uh, increasing his wages to one hundred and fifty five thousand a week. He's currently on ninety thousand. Uh, do you think he would deserve those wages? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. he's one of the best players in the Premier League last I think I heard season. That stat yesterday of Sanchez's wages plus Ozil's wages still don't amount to Rooney's wages. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, <laughs> Rooney's is like at least three. Is it three twenty, three hundred, three fifty. Three three fifty thousand. Alexis Sanchez. So you put it in that context. You put it in that context. Sanchez more You money. put it in the context that like Giroud's getting one hundred and fifty thousand. It's like well, Sanchez has been your best player before. I think it's a bargain to keep him on that. But I think realistically, if they want to keep their by far and away their best player, they're gonna have to give him an improved offer. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a bit of an insult to the Daily Mail, but I, I'd like to uh, just absolutely scrap that story because it's completely <laughs> untrue. The day before they reported that, Arsenal came out with a statement saying that they are not in talks with either Alexis Sanchez or Ozil, that they are in no rush to improve their contract. So I have no idea where the Daily Mail got that uh, that story from, but... <laughs> 
I don't know. It just it just kind of basically exactly it's just cycle. just just putting out a story for the sake of putting out a story. Um, Freddie Adu, this big American player back <laughs> in the day, sponsored by Nike, yeah, man, the, hero, the, the, the American hero has now sent out a tweet advertising a Hoover. What has, <laughs> what has it come looked up? so, so promising <laughs> at the start, but it's like sometimes when you get to not only as a footballer, but just as a Hoover, when you start like advertising <laughs> Hoovers, I mean, it really didn't, it never like really lived up to the now, hype, yeah. did it? Like, yeah, like you're talking about someone who just shown tremendous potential as even as early as a 14 year old scoring against grown men in the MLS, and you know Nike had a huge, a huge investment in terms of million, multi-million kind of deal as soon as he was at least maybe 16, 17. But I think it's just someone who never really. I mean, I don't no offense to the guy, but probably never really put in the work ethic. Where we hear like he was failing fitness tests um, at multiple different places. So it's just. It's probably it, it's a sad story, but I mean it's probably good. I mean, good promo for the Hoover Company at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, and we'll just we'll just finish off with uh, a nice story. The French national anthem will be sung before all the Premier League games this weekend. Uh, what do you make of that? Do you think that's slightly unfair to the other countries who had tragedies as well, or do you think it's a good thing for football? Um, yeah, I, I think obviously, like, I mean, then, then again, you have to go, like, do you have time to play, like, four or five national anthems before a game? Like, I mean, it's either that or, or do nothing. And, and I suppose, probably just given the amount of French players that are in the, um, that are in the Premiership, I think that probably is, is a token to probably, is a, probably a sign of respect for them. Um, and I suppose just as important as the poppy was to a lot of English players, I think that it, it's just probably equally as important to the French players. And I think that the FA are probably really engaged given their display on Tuesday. But we've also seen it, we tried the NFL on, on the weekend past and also with the NBA for the week. I think that they've, in American sports, they've shown um, there's been French flags brought out into the field, there's been the French national anthem. So I think it's probably just, probably the greater community of sports just reacting to what was a, a really awful event. Yeah, so I think we're going to end our show there. Thanks very much, guys, for all your opinions. Remember, we you can follow us on Twitter at DCUFM Sport. We'll be back next week with another podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Stronger.